Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Professor Kirsten Jordan, who is a professor in mathematics in the Department of Decision Sciences at the University of South Africa, UNISA, and is also part-time executive director of the South African Mathematics Foundation. She holds an NRFB rating from the National Research Foundation and is one of only three women in the country to hold a B rating for mathematics. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Amelia. Prof. Jordan, people make decisions every day. Some are complex, others are simple. I read an article that estimates that the average adult makes approximately 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day, which is a crazy figure. In layman's terms, can you briefly explain what decision sciences is and how it impacts on our daily lives? Okay. I work in the Department of Decision Sciences, and its previous name was Operations Research. Uh, Basically, Decision Sciences is an interdisciplinary uh, scientific field which comprises computer science, statistics, mathematics, and even physics to make decisions based on mathematical models. What would you say are some of the key factors that influence our decision-making processes and how can we make better decisions? Because let's face it, I think there's always been phases or periods in our life where we've weighed up one decision with another and potentially made the wrong choice. All right. So decision-making, if you study the cognitive processes of decision-making itself, that is a very, very interesting field. There's actually been some recent research that shows that a lot of what we think we make rational decisions is very emotionally based. So if you study the brain patterns as decisions are made, people think they're making a logically based decision, they weigh the pros and the cons, etc. But when you study the brain patterns, there's a a pause between uh, the thinking that's going on and then before the decision is made where the emotional cortex is activated. So the emotions, how you feel about something is also important in that process. So this is a field that's still ongoing. My field is mathematics. So if you look at how somebody solves a mathematical problem, which is also a decision-making process to decide what algorithm or method they're going to use to try and solve the problem. The research on that is really still in its uh, infancy. Uh, We don't understand the processes, how mathematics, for instance, is done cognitively and how we decide how to approach a problem and how to solve it. It's amazing that there's been so much progress and yet we still have so many unknowns. Yes. You spoke about the idea that we like to think we're rational thinkers, but pretty much it's emotions that that tend to take over with decisioning. And in today's fast-paced world, we face a, a deluge of information. How can decision science help us navigate this information overload to make more informed choices? Okay, that, that touches on, on related fields as well, which, which would be popularly termed data science, which also is a very wide field, but also falls under decision sciences and the mathematical sciences. So you're talking about all of this information that's available to us. 
and um, how one uses that to make decisions, first of all, but also to make predictions. And the study of that, how you analyze the information that is available to us, how you decide what is useful information, what is not useful information, and what you include if you want to make predictions into the future um, about what you expect will happen, then it's a very fine um, analytical process and differs for each problem that you're looking at. Um, and then you fit a model to that and you can train machines to actually now use existing data to interpret and analyze the data and then from there make predictions. But uh, of course, you know, anything that we build is only based on the knowledge that we currently have. So there's many examples where you have um, data and information that you fit a model to, and then something like COVID happens, and of course, anything we predicted goes out the window. Um, so it's it's not a precise science in that sense. And on that notion of data and information, AI and machine learning are gaining prominence in decision-making processes and have had an impact across literally every field. How do these technologies complement or challenge traditional decision sciences approaches? Well, they form an important next step, but a lot of what is being worked on is still very new and still developing. But it will have a profound impact. So you cannot throw out all the knowledge up to now and the models and the ways of describing decision-making and how to predict what will happen into the future in terms of statistical knowledge and all that kind of uh, existing science. It all is still relevant. But doing it with the aid of artificial intelligence, so with the aid of machines, you can just handle so much more data um, if you look at all the data that's coming in, uh, what we call big data coming in from the cosmos, we do need machines to help us analyze that because humanly it's not possible to actually analyze all of that without the aid of machines. Um, so a lot of it is still developing, but there's actually been amazing progress made recently. So the whole thing with chat GPT, um, I'm trying to remember the correct word for it, LLMs, I think they're called. This is amazing technology. It's artificial intelligence, and it can actually have a rational conversation with you, telling you information and putting it in a better way than what you yourself can do by using existing information on the internet. And um, that's only just starting. So artificial intelligence will, will really revolutionize our world, what we do, how we write, and how we create artwork. So it's not just decision-making, but all spheres of life that will be influenced more and more by AI and data science. But there has to be real caution with using all of this AI because there really are errors as well. Thanks for giving us a peek under the hood of decision sciences and the type of work that you, you do in your space. Reflecting on your background, you taught high school maths before graduating from University of the Witwatersrand with a PhD in mathematics. You held positions at Vista University, WITS, University of Pretoria, before joining UNISA in 2017 as a full professor in the Department of Decision Sciences. Please tell us what motivated you to pursue a career in maths and eventually become a professor in this field. How long have you got? Because <laughs> that will depend how far back I go. So I actually started studying psychology and I 
took mathematics and other, uh, I think, geography as part of that degree uh, with the idea that I, well, I needed a teaching bursary, so I had to have teaching subjects. And I realized quite soon that the psychology did not appeal to me at all because it was a, a science of theories and whatever theory you accepted or set your framework in which you did research and analyzed uh, human behavior, etc. But there was no absolute sort of truth that you knew this was how humans operate. Whereas in mathematics, it, it's absolutely logical, deductive and inductive reasoning. And when you ha have a result in mathematics, it's something that you've rigorously proven from existing knowledge. And that appealed to me a lot. Both of them are human sciences in the sense that they are in our heads. But uh, the mathematics, the, the logic of it, and uh, the fact that I knew that something was correct once I'd proven it, that appealed to me a lot. And I changed my degree that I took more science subjects to eventually graduate with a BSc, a Bachelor of Science. And then I went to, I did an honours in maths education and I did my postgraduate qualification to be a teacher and I went to go and teach. Once I was teaching, I realized that the system was very constraining. Uh, I loved teaching the children, but within the system, I was not that satisfied thinking that I would have to do this for the rest of my life. So I went to one of my mentors, the professor at my maths department, and I said, what do I do now? I've studied five years and, and I felt I had a calling to teach. And, and now I can't see myself doing this forever. And he said, well, why don't you study further in mathematics, do a master's, and then teach students? So you're still teaching, teach students. So, th so that's what I did. And then once I was busy with my master's, I also had children at around that time, and I took a gap from formal employment. But once you're in the university system, you realize quite soon that the only way to progress is to continue studying, do a PhD. So I intended to do my PhD after my master's, but I had a gap due to my kids. So when I went back to full-time employment, I was at a different institution, and I did my PhD. And I'm probably answering some of your future questions now in this answer, but the decision about how to do my PhD and what to do my PhD in is quite interesting because up to that point, anybody that had spoken to me about continuing my studies had had, had told me, this was in the 90s, had uh, spoken to me about it with the, not perception, but uh, that I could teach at university so I could be a, a lecturer. But nobody had spoken to me as a female in this field as the possibility of becoming a researcher. At that stage, all the professors were uh, male. They still are in that particular department. <laughs> but anyway, um, and when I moved to the new institution where I then did my PhD, I was exposed to a head of department who'd also first had children, female, who had taken up a career in researching quite late and she really broke the glass ceiling for me because I suddenly realized it's not just a matter of doing my PhD so that I can progress to a senior lecturer, but I can actually become a professor. If I look at doing my PhD in something that I can research in for the rest of my life. 
And that's how I moved into that role. So I did my PhD. I continued doing research. I followed the academic path. So thinking about effectively your your mentor, she helped put the guardrails in place to direct you to study a subject matter which was going to give you longevity and career opportunities that fulfilled your passions. Yes. Yes, that's exactly how it was. And and up to that time, my mentors had not spoken about this more long-term view. So the examples that were in place everywhere where I had been working was women being lecturers and doing the teaching. And she was the first example that I had of a woman being a leader and actually doing research, going to international conferences, presenting her research, writing papers with prominent international mathematicians. And that was really key in changing how I thought about what I could achieve. I think role modeling is so important because you've you've seen it, you can believe it, you can do it. Thinking about women in leadership for a moment, we tend to be underrepresented across the board. And given this view where we're talking about role models for, for instance, how do you think women occupying positions of leadership influence younger women to consider alternative roles and perhaps overcome stereotypical thinking, which maybe we self-sabotage ourselves? I think the most important way is what you've already mentioned is mentorship. So women helping each other to see the bigger picture and see beyond where they are at the moment, and uh, working towards that uh, concretely, rationally deciding that that's what you're going to do. Um, There are many programs at universities at this stage working with mentorships. Of course, in a field like mathematics, where women already are very underrepresented, um, it's harder, but but we're working across universities at this stage, and there's many of my colleagues at other universities that are very active in this that have uh, research forums where they give women the space and, and young developing academics as well to actually present their research, etc. So that's on a research level. There's a program called STEM Mentha by one of my very interesting colleagues who's not at my institution, where she creates programs within the maths departments where the women, the young and the old ones, support each other and mentor the young ones consciously. So those kind of things are very powerful and and we're trying to use those. But of course, it can happen informally also. So I regularly try and take young developing academics under my wing. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that they're exactly in your field. You just give them advice where they need it and career advice and decisions in terms of what they're going to do research in and what they need to do to get it in place and how they develop their overseas networks, etc. When I was preparing for this show, and we've already touched on it a, a little um I came across a speech from the current Minister of Higher Education, Science and Technology, Dr. Bladen Zamande, where he said that women account for approximately 18.5% of professors and just under 30% of associate professors, which shows that the pipeline of female academics is perhaps not where it should be. In your view, what would you say are some of the issues that are holding women back from rising through the academic ranks? Uh, All right. So the statistics that you quoted, first of all, I need to say would be even worse for mathematics, definitely, or for the mathematical sciences, and that I include statistics. 
So there's underrepresentation uh, across the board. We don't have enough mathematicians, statisticians, mathematically trained people in the country. And um, the representation of women is very small. But um, what is holding them back in a field or from rising? I can't talk for other disciplines. For mathematics uh, and mathematical, let me talk wider, mathematical sciences, and in, in that I then include decision science and I include statistics. Um, if you look at the lower levels of positions, so lecturer, senior lecturer, and also undergraduate studies and perhaps honours, it's very much equal. And in fact, in some areas at lecture level, senior, there's more women than men. Where they underrepresented is in at the higher levels and for the higher degrees. There's many reasons that I've heard spoken about why this is so. The fact that they're underrepresented in the first place plays a big role. Still for me, if I go to conferences and I'm one of five women in a conference of 100 people, it's hard you know, you you feel like an outsider right from the start. So that plays a role, but it's also often the constraints in terms of having to juggle many roles for women. So if you become uh, or try and follow a career path like I did to become an associate professor, full professor, it comes with some costs. You have to work on weekends. I mean, I can tell you many times that I wrote research papers on Christmas Day. <laughs> I work very hard at also still being there for my family, being there for my children, taking them to sports events, but it meant that I was often working after hours at the other work that I was doing. So those costs sometimes just become too much, I think, with the rewards coming very slowly. So it's a very long-term view that you have to take to follow these kind of career paths. So we've got fewer women as a starting base that are in the discipline. How do we make the field more attractive to encourage women to participate in the space? I might continue now for an hour just on this question. The question is very relevant in terms of what's going on in our country at the moment and, and in mathematics education. And uh, movements that are happening for grassroots developments to try and exactly address this issue because we have already at school level in South Africa, far too few learners choosing mathematics as a subject versus mathematics literacy. Um, so we have a shortage coming into the job market, not just for academia, but also for industries uh, and finance and business that need mathematics skills as a basis for employing somebody. So the answer there is, to me, very simple. It's about teaching at all levels for understanding, not just following algorithms, but that there's an understanding of why you're doing a process and why it works. Um, and that is best achieved through an uh, approach of problem solving. So trying to solve mathematically interesting problems and exposing learners and university students at all levels to that. So uh, the type of thing that as a researcher would do, I'm trying to answer a real world problem and, and uh, apply my discipline to solve that problem, doing that at lower levels already. This is very stimulating because when you start doing that, the math becomes really exciting. 
And there are programs even from the Department of Basic Education already in place that they're busy implementing. There's a new strategy framework for the teaching of mathematics, and they're busy implementing that. So those things are happening, and hopefully they'll start making a difference soon. You're definitely passionate about your subject (laughs) and being able to grow it from grassroots upwards. I know you serve as Executive Director of the South African Mathematics Foundation. Please tell us about some of the aims and objectives of the institution. The Maths Foundation is a non-profit organization, also a non-government organization, but it is a grassroots development that happened in the early 2000s, an attempt basically to bring together the professionals working at university in the mathematical sciences and the mathematics education sectors, so teachers at schools, but also academics at universities that educate teachers in mathematics, to get them working together to try and improve the situation in terms of mathematics in the country. So it's an umbrella body for the Learned Society for the South African Mathematics Society and the Association for Mathematics Educators of South Africa. And in the foundation, the aim is to be a national voice for mathematics, to impact what's happening in the mathematics sphere and address all of these issues that you've been asking me about to try and improve things. Staying for a moment on your non-day job, because you have the one aspect of of being part of the um, the South African Mathematics Foundation, but you've also served the academic community. You were elected president of the South African Mathematical Society between 2016 to 2019. You're a nominated member of the Academy of Sciences of South Africa. The National Research Foundation rates you as a B researcher, which is a category reserved for researchers with considerable international recognition. How do these types of academic citizenship contribute to your personal brand and also to accessing opportunities? Right. I suppose the answer is I don't really think about it like that at all. Um, My research and teaching, my academic job, which is my full-time job, is part of the career path I've chose. So being a professor, that is what you do. And uh, I love teaching my students and I find the research aspect really challenging, but I also enjoy it. The other things that I do, all the other profiles that you mentioned, it's not related to me personally. I don't see it that way, but it's it's what keeps me sane in my world work. If administration and other duties sort of seem to swamp me um, because it gives me an opportunity to really try to make a difference. I think that's what drives me for all of these other things that I do serving on boards and, and and being president of society. I'm trying to make a difference to what's happening in our country in terms of mass education. And I'm a very small voice. I can't change a lot. But if I do nothing and I just sit back and work in my own little academic sphere, I'm not going to achieve anything. And I'm doing a lot less than a lot of other people. I don't know how else to describe it. I just would like to play a role in changing things and improving things for other people and for the country as a whole. That's a great sense of giving back to the discipline, giving back to the country and being able to drive a real meaningful change uh, for future generations. 
it's frustrating though as well if you if you don't manage to do what you want to do so, <laughs> um because you know it is you have to work at it all the time and um it's dependent on sponsorships and things that you're passionate about don't necessarily immediately draw funding or support from where you think you should be getting it from and so so it is challenging the other point that you spoke about is if you're doing this in, in isolation, you potentially wouldn't get very far, but it's by okay. doing this in these groups, like-minded people and having that momentum okay. to shift. Yes. yes. And everybody being willing to work together and, and, and uh, accommodate differences. And uh, so this is fantastic. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. So there's a very uh, a recent national drive coming from grassroots. So even uh, beyond the Maths Foundation, but from the Learned Societies in Mathematical Sciences itself, with a discussion recently at Stellenbosch by many of the bodies involved, and uh, Prof. Jonathan Jansen has been doing media releases. He speaks about addressing a body of academics in the mathematical sciences, and he was actually addressing this group of people. Um, and we're trying to work towards a national strategy for the mathematical sciences in South Africa, um, because there's a lot of fragmentation at the moment. There's a lot of interest in money going into projects to improve what's happening at the school level, but it's very fragmented. Government money is going into research chairs, into centers of excellence, into national graduate academies. These are all in maths and statistical sciences. Somehow we need to get all of this under some umbrella body. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, drive a, a focus. As we come towards the, the latter part of the show, one question that I ask all my guests on this program is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. Sometimes people talk about a person in their life or faith, uh, discipline, uh, perseverance, values, in your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? Um, I'm not comfortable with you really saying to my success because it's all still a work in progress, but um, very good support from my family and loved ones is one thing. Um, a vision beyond myself with what I'm trying to achieve, I think, plays a role, and that is linked to my own personal beliefs as well. Um, but dedication and hard work, just being committed to what you're trying to do, once you've decided to do something, being prepared to do what it takes to make it work. Could you talk for a moment about vision and thinking about things be beyond yourself? Because it's sometimes quite a hard concept for people to grasp. But it's so important uh, as, a, as a mechanism to, to forge ahead. So if you can share aspects of your vision and how you feel you are um, thinking about things in a bigger way. Um, I think probably the best way to describe it is that it, it's rooted in my discipline. So I have an absolute conviction that mathematical sciences have the potential to make a big difference in our world. And uh the skills that come with it and the type of logical, reasonable thinking and reasoning and being able to approach problems, solving them uh, successfully without having an emotional component, but really having a rational approach to how you're going to solve a problem is to me 
absolutely the key driver for uh, and is part of the national strategy that, that we have to improve these skills in the country. And they're not at the moment anywhere close to where we need them to be. The research for how poorly our learners are performing compared to international learners in terms of what mathematics they can do, not just maths. I know it's English and languages. There's other problems too within our education system. So I can't just say mathematics, but mathematical sciences and being able to communicate effectively in a language are key to growing the skills with in our country, which the country needs to develop and grow and improve its economy. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's my, because I have that firm conviction that motivates me to want to make a change in what's happening in that sphere as far as what I can. Does that answer your question? Yep, a very powerful driver. Uh, lot, lots to do, I would say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> When you were growing up, can you share with us some of the pivotal moments that have had an impact on you? In terms of my career? A career, life in general, big moments that, that were important to you? I can't think of a specific moment or anything like that, but I can talk to how I was brought up to um, and never limit myself in terms of what I can do because of who I was born to be or what background I was born with. So my parents really had a strong uh, emphasis on that I could do things if I wanted to do them, and they didn't try and push me in certain directions at all. My mom would have desperately wanted me to study engineering or become a medical doctor, but <laughs> she they, they didn't insist on it. But they always encouraged me that I could do whatever I wanted to and uh, supported me within that. And can you tell us about a few of the strong female role models that you've had in your life? You you mentioned, for instance, earlier uh, about someone who helped mentor and nurture you when you were going into doing your, your PhD. Please use this platform to, to share a little about her or, or anyone else. Yeah, I can share about her for sure because she played a very important role. Um, uh, she was my supervisor then for my PhD. Uh, she was Professor Kathy, uh, she is Professor Kathy Driver. She was the head of department at WITS at that stage. And then she went on to become Dean of Sciences at um, University of Cape Town. Um, so her, her strong work ethic and also um passion about what she was doing and enthusiasm in terms of her leadership and how she was trying to influence things in her sphere were, were very important for me to see what could be done. Uh, I'm nowhere near to achieving what she achieved. Um, but yes, that doesn't matter. So uh, the fact that she allowed me to see beyond that, I, I don't have to be uh, only a lecturer, I can be a lot more than that. I think another, it doesn't have to be ma uh, females, right? I, my previous head of department at University of Pretoria also played a role, Professor Jean Lebouma, in the sense that he gave me the platforms to grow myself. So as unbelievable as what it sounds even to me nowadays, I used to be 
quite shy and would never open my mouth within meetings or say, give my opinion. Um, so this was a part, I think, of my primary school uh, upbringing, being Afrikaans, that kind of culture that you say yes and you listen to authority. Um, uh, that pervaded how I was acting in those kind of situations. And I would sit in meetings and I wouldn't even think of having an opinion. I definitely would, in a class, not even open my mouth to ask a question. I would keep quiet. And he was a very strategic thinker and, and, and implemented some interesting models within our department to make uh, people to give people opportunities to develop their leadership skills. And one of the things he did with me, he did several, but he put me in charge of our uh, weekly uh, colloquium series. So a colloquium is just a more popular talk about what you your research is about. And um, being in charge of that meant that I had to introduce the speakers. And it's as simple as that, that broke the ice for me being able to talk in those kind of forums and, and actually present myself and, and uh, uh, you know, lead when people are asking questions and who answers, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was one of the uh, important things that made a difference to how I developed eventually to be able to, to lead organizations such as the, uh, I was the first female president of the South African Mass Society, for instance, which is, which is predominantly males. Um, and yeah, so those are the two main ones I can think of. How does that make you feel? Because I think one of my big takeaways today has been about breaking through limits, uh, changing your yourself and transforming and knowing that you can do different things. So here you were afraid to speak up, not form an opinion, and going from being um, quite uh, reserved to then going on and leading an organization. Yes, yeah, I think many people would uh, would say now they would wish I I hadn't learned to speak my opinion because I probably am too free in speaking it. But um, it is, I suppose, if you look at it that way. But it's been many years of development, so I'm not young anymore. This was when in my early twenties, um, and and I think the important thing is that. One, one can grow like this if you're given the opportunities by other people and you're encouraged and given a supportive environment within your work atmosphere and your home atmosphere, et cetera, where you can develop new skills and grow like that. Thanks for sharing your experiences. As we close out today's conversation, please can you share a few words of wisdom or motivation with women and girls who are listening to us on the continent? Um, yes, right. I think the most important thing I can share is that you just have to look at yourself rationally and realize the potential that you do have to grow and develop. So as a woman, we tend to credit our successes to external factors and our mistakes to ourselves. And there's been research on this done often. Men work differently. They tend to credit their successes to themselves and their errors or failures to external factors. And it's important to realize consciously this difference and uh, understand that 
Um, if you are successful in something that you do, you played a role. It's not just your teacher that was good or um, that you actually played a role. And uh, so that you grow in your confidence. It's not so that you get, become arrogant and uh, have a inflated attitude about yourself. It's just that you, you develop the confidence to know that you actually can do the things that you want to do and look at what you want to do and, and then consciously also make plans. How are you going to get there? What do you need to do to get to where you want to go? Great message. Um, this view of acknowledging that you contribute to your success as well as some of the external factors and that you've got this vision and, and path that you are, are going to be gunning for and, and aiming for to achieve. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the interesting questions. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity. And today we've been talking to Professor Kirsten Jordan, who is a professor of mathematics in the Department of Decision Sciences at UNISA, as well as a part-time executive director of the South African Mathematics Foundation. 